economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, we are delighted today to have Dr. Rachel Ferguson on the line for a third time with us on the podcast. She had forwarded me a podcast about the law, and she remembered my Lutheran background and roots and thought that maybe this was something that was challenging something about Luther. And I said, gosh, this sounds like something we should do a podcast on, Rachel. And she agreed. And so here we are today. Rachel is a professor of managerial philosophy and director of the Liberty and Ethics Center at the Hammond Institute. Her research interests include Hume's classical liberalism, the philosophy of economics, and Aristotelian virtue theory. Ferguson teaches political philosophy, game theory, and business ethics. She also facilitates a course on economic federalism that accompanies the Liberty and Ethics Center's spring conference. So Rachel is a coordinator of the liberty-oriented faculty in mid-sized Midwestern universities like Ottawa. That's part of my connection here with Rachel. And she received her bachelor's from Lindenwood University and her PhD from St. Louis University. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You bet. Now tell us about this book that you have that's forthcoming. It's kind of an exciting project. I think so. Yeah. So I'm writing a book called Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, and I'm writing it with my friend Marcus Witcher, who's a historian, also in the classical liberal tradition. And, you know, what I realized with a lot of the discussions we've been having on race and the history of race in America, you know, a lot of people are unaware of the fact that the classical liberal tradition and and libertarian scholars have actually said quite a lot about race and discrimination but they don't necessarily gather it all together in one place the way a lot of other you know, ideological perspectives have done. And so people don't know it, right? They, they don't know the literature. And so what I decided to do is kind of see if I can get all these insights into one place. And it turned into quite a project because we go all the way back to slavery, you know, and, and all through American history and kind of take a chronological approach. And so it's wonderful. I've been able to engage a lot of people, podcasts, Black conservatives, you know, really interesting conversations going on, as, as well as engaging with progressives who are often very surprised that libertarians have anything to say about uh, Black oppression, the history of Black oppression, but we certainly do. Yeah, great. Well, that sounds like another podcast in the future for that. Yes, as well. let's do so. it. <laughs> So today, tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you listened to this professor talk about the law as in terms of the Bible. So this is really going to be a faith in economics. I think it's a, a little bit on uh, maybe how to live your life as a Christian when it comes yeah. down to some of these issues, correct? Yeah. And, you know, I guess part of the reason it resonated with me is because I've always been concerned about a tendency you sometimes see in Christianity to have a kind of Manichaeist perspective on God, you know, that there's sort of the old God and the New Testament God, as if we're talking about a different God here, you know, and one is judging and one is gracious or something like that. And I think there's a 
ton of grace in the Old Testament and there's a lot of judging in the New Testament. And so it's just not true. You know, I see a consistency in God's character throughout the entire Bible. And so I was really fascinated to see this scholar on the Biblical Mind podcast, which I've been enjoying, talk about the fact that the way that we sometimes paint it as though the law is the religion of works, you know, works righteousness, and the New Testament is all about, you know, being saved by grace through faith, that that means that we treat a lot of things that are in the Old Testament as sort of, you know, not important, right? We just, we don't think about it. We don't care about it. And yet, if you look at the way, for instance, David talks about the law, like in Psalm 119, I meditate on your law all night long, you know, and I praise and worship the Lord when I think about his law and that he never changes, you know, so surely there's something really wonderful about the law, but I don't know that I was ever impressed with that as a child growing up in, you know, white evangelical Christianity in America. And so it's something that I wanted to sink my teeth into. And I wanted to challenge you in particular, because I think one of the other times I was on your podcast, we got into sort of Luther versus other perspectives. And And so I thought, well, let's see, you know, let's see what what Russ has to say here. Yeah, well, and I think what's funny about that podcast, the way she discusses the law, I think is in a lot of ways consistent with the way Lutherans look at the law with one important difference. And that is the, the mainline Lutheran theology is that the law is there to point you to Christ so that each time you see something in the Bible that, whoopsie, I don't do that. And so that it immediately diminishes any self-righteousness that you might start to have, because even as mentioned in the podcast, the lustful eye or getting angry with your brother or thinking murderous thoughts or whatever, and you've already sinned. So it turns out to be pretty easy to break the law and therefore nobody is righteous through their works and everybody needs Christ. And so I guess the pushback that Lutherans sometimes get is that if that is it, if it's grace by faith alone, what do you do? And so that's where I think I heard her say, using the law as a a way to show how you can live a life that's full of love, for instance, love love God above no others and love your neighbor as yourself, Mm -hmm. that it helps to show what that life could look like but it's really in the Lutheran point of view, always there to condemn. And so it's always condemning that you need Christ each time as you, as you walk through life. Yeah. And it may be, I, first of all, I'm happy to hear that it's somewhat compatible with Luther. I don't want to disagree with Luther if I don't have to, you know, <laughs> but I will say that it could be a matter of emphasis, right? So it could be a matter of, well, okay, maybe I can agree with what you say, but what do we talk about all the time? when a topic comes up. And so if all we talk about when we talk about the law is that it condemns us, have we paid attention to the way that the law shows us the character of God, right? What does it teach us about who God is? And if you look at someone like Thomas Aquinas, for instance, he's going to say that the whole Old Testament is this educative process, right? It's one family that is learning about who God really is in contrast to all these other terrible gods, right? No, you don't have to sacrifice your children to me. I'm not that kind of God, you know? And so you go on and 
and it expands. And by the time you get to the minor prophets, you're very explicitly saying, we've got to care about the widow and the orphan and the stranger, right? And the poor. And you know why Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed? Because they didn't care about widows and orphans. That's why, you know. So, and so, so you're, you're walking right along that slippery slope that Luther wants to avoid. And that is this the instant you start thinking, you just, I'm going to put quote unquote here for Rachel, I've got to care for the poor. Luther would say, no, you don't have to care for the poor. You don't have to do anything. Your most righteous deeds are filthy rags. There's nothing you can do to accelerate your standing with God. And so that Who is- Who said anything about accelerating my standing with God? I mean, if you're <laughs> well... talking- if you're talking about the doctrine of justification, we're in perfect agreement, Russ, but I'm talking about sanctification. Yeah, but if you talk about things that you have to do, like I should do, right, I've got to do this, you're not obligated to do that stuff. You should freely want to do that. And that's where I said, I think there's some consistency that you could use the law or some of the Old Testament stories, New Testament stories, whatever, to say, oh, you know, I really want to live a life of freedom with this grace that I have there's some things that I could do. It looks like caring for the poor is a good thing to do. Maybe I'll try to do that. But the obligation part is the, I think the thing that Luther struggled with his life personally and where he came to his theology is that he was the best monk there was. Like there was nobody better than Luther in terms of following the law and doing the right thing, but it just drove him crazy that he couldn't perfectly do it. And then he kind okay. of developed his theology. Uh, I do want to jump in here really quick and just mention, I think I do have sort of a, a siding with Russ here to a certain extent, but also want to throw in something else. And so one thing I'll say is that I do think good works come about in the process of sanctification, but I don't think that they have any role in being the thing that sanctifies you. So I think Galatians 3, especially the beginning, is pretty clear about that. Paul actually chastises the foolish Galatians who say, how could you who were basically saved by Christ be perfected in the flesh? And so he's saying, you know, that using the flesh, obeying the laws of man, you know, your flesh cannot perfect you, only Christ can do that. And so I do think that sanctification ultimately is a result of the grace that God gives us in salvation, and it's God working on us. But I will say that Paul also mentions, I believe it's in Romans, there's this question of, well, should we keep on sinning then because we've been saved? And Paul has the phrase that, well, may it never be. That is, we've been freed from sin. And so I think there's a really careful relationship here between good works and salvation. It's that salvation comes first and it's a gift from God. You don't do anything to earn it. But once you have salvation, part of the gift of salvation is that your life is going to start to reflect a movement towards avoiding sin. You're going to start to grow a distaste for sin. And I think that's just the result of God's grace, not, not so much something that we should do to continue to sanctify ourselves. So I 100% agree that sanctification is the result of God's grace, that we cannot become holy holier without God's grace, and that even the good works that we do are the result of God's grace. So I agree with that 100%. But let me quote Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Okay, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So it's not going to happen by magic. Right? If I uh, there's a little methodism in me. You got to have a method, <laughs> you know? And so if I want to be a holier person, I may want to do things that make room in my life for God's grace to come through. And those are just the classic spiritual disciplines, the things that Christians have done 
throughout all of history. And I'm not talking about doing something so that you're more acceptable to God. I'm talking about doing something because you love God and you want to be closer to him and experience him in a deeper way. And that's right. It will increase your distaste for sin because you're spending time with a holy God. And so you'll have greater distaste for sin. And so if I'm reading the Old Testament law, I sure as heck hope that I'm getting to know God better and getting to know his character better so that I am loving God for who he is and creating distaste within myself for the opposite of that, right? And so what do you guys think about that idea? I hate it. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't hate it. Uh, let me let Peter go first because he had he wanted to jump in here. I think this also just gets us to maybe a deeper thing that the podcast really begs the question of, but that they never actually talked about, which is they really focused on the law and a specific law dealing with agriculture that really reflected morality. And so there's throughout the Torah, 613 laws. Uh, and some of them are about keeping clean, that is morally clean, But some of them also have to do with specific rituals that are part of a covenant. And so these are things like circumcision. These are things like dietary restrictions. I want Uh, my bacon. Exactly. And so I think that we sometimes talk about this verse, and we we probably could get to it after the break because it looks like we'll hit here soon. But this verse where Jesus says he doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I, I feel like sometimes that's interpreted to say, well, then we're still under the law. But I find that really hard to square with the fact that Paul says actually in three different occasions, both in Romans twice and Galatians once, that we're not under the law explicitly. And he gives specific things for which we're not under the law for. So circumcision, special dietary restrictions, different feasts. These are all different things that Paul says you shouldn't bother each other about these things anymore because you're no longer under them. real, Real quickly, though, those are all things that have to do with setting aside the Jewish people as God's covenant people. That's specific to them being Jewish. Yes. And so when we go into the New Testament, where Jesus is opening up the message to the whole world, then yes, you drop the parts of the law that have to do with being Jewish, right? Yes. And, and, and being the special group. And he's saying, no, you've got to stop this because the Gentiles have been invited in. Yes. Oh, I, I certainly agree with that. And so that's one place That's one place they didn't go in the podcast, actually, that I wasn't sure where they stood on this question, because I wanted to make sure that we set that aside first, that we all agree that we're not under the 613 laws of the Torah, because that includes some of these Jewish laws, these festivals that set people apart. There's another question, I think, which we've started to talk about that we do need to get more into, which is how much are we under the moral laws that God gives us so we can love each other and love God? And what does it mean to be under those laws or not under those laws? And I think that's a good question. But I also did want to separate, you know, uh, this question of the laws that we're certainly not under anymore. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Okay. I I have no Yeah, that that looks like a good (laughs) spot to head into our break with that little cliffhanger. I'd also like to talk about your quote a bit on grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earnings that I, I, I just think there's and this is maybe even somewhat off topic, but you know that's what we're all about in economics is you're merit-based, you've earned, you've worked, and you get paid your marginal value product and so on and so forth. And I always think that's just part of the amazing story of the Bible is that it's, that it's not that, that it's all about grace. So I think the, we can drill down a little bit more. We're certainly hitting on it with the earnings. And then the podcast scholar that we've been talking about, I believe her name was Carmen Imenez or Imes? Imes, however it's Imes, yeah. And talked about gleaning for the farmer to leave the corners for the food and how 
she would tell her class, you know, well, it doesn't, obviously the farmers don't want to leave that because there's no sojourners that would come and do it. We might as well harvest all of the crop a hundred percent. Otherwise it's just going to go to waste in today's world, right? That it was more, yeah, maybe more sure. cultural. And then she goes on to say, but the law now then tells us, well, how can we apply that to our lives today? And so I think that makes it kind of wide open that you're back to following something good. I have to do something good with my life every day, something I have to do. And that's certainly, I think, opposed to what Luther's teachings are. So with that, we will leave that cliffhanger and be back in just a bit. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Wharton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have lots of great student programs here at Ottawa. Next week, we're kicking off our Urbit uh, educational session where we have some people from Urbit uh, presenting materials along with uh, Professor Justin Clark and kind of learning on how to go digitally off the grid. So if you're tired of Facebook or somebody else always being able to track your stuff, Urbit is a solution for that on how you can have peer-to-peer communication. And so that kind of privacy can lead to some flourishing of its own. So if you or someone else you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back. So we had a couple of cliffhangers here that we're going to bridge off on. And, and Justin, you wanted to talk about a little build on that agricultural part of the gleanings? Yeah. So one thing that I, the way I read or I understood Harmon's point is that she was saying something like a lot of Christians think that we aren't, we don't have to care about the old Hebrew law anymore, but she is saying we actually are still under that law in some respects. And then she gave this example of, you know, this law that you ought to leave some of the harvest for the poor. And she said, well, when I teach that to my students, they say, well, you know, we actually, we can't even do that today. You know, the poor don't walk up to our wheat fields or whatever. So we might as well harvest it all. And she says, well, what if we look at that law and we figure out what kind of, what it was intended to do, which is care for the poor. So maybe this law means that we ought to care for the poor. Um, And so maybe if we look at the kind of spirit of the law, Maybe there's some wisdom there, and then we can apply that wisdom to our life in other ways. We could fulfill that law by caring for the poor in some other way. And that's the way in which we are still under the law. But then when I heard that, then it struck me that, well, then you're not really saying that we are under a law anymore. Mm -hmm. You're saying something like, there is a great deal of wisdom in the Old Testament, which I don't think anyone disagreed with from the jump. So I was kind of worried about what her actual thesis was or where the argument, where the tension is supposed to be. Because I think all Christians think that there, of course, is some great wisdom in the Old Testament laws and that we ought to follow the spirit of a lot of those laws because they direct us toward things like charity toward the poor. So when she says that, you know, we are still under the law, but these laws aren't really laws, yeah, then I... I start to worry about the point. Yeah, and I, that's where I was kind of getting at that. I, I thought her point kind of softened at that point. Rachel, what were you thinking in regard to either Luther or that issue? Well, I did take her to just be, and I I didn't re-listen to it right before this podcast, so maybe her wording, you know, maybe I'm, I'm alighting over some of her wording, but I did take her to just be saying that we're learning something about the character of God here. 
the God who we're supposed to love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when David says he loves the law and that he meditates on it day and night, it's because there's some use in that. There's some use in really thinking about what is this law about? What's the spirit? And we see Jesus doing this with the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath really about, right? We want to look at the spirit and not just the letter of the law. And so, yeah, so I'm in perfect agreement with that. I think where I differ is that let's go back to what you said about Luther, you know, being the greatest monk and needing to understand the doctrine of grace. It's totally fundamental. I absolutely agree. This, you can't try, you know, there's no point in the trying approach to holiness because there's nothing but God's grace that's going to change us, but you can train. So not trying, but training. Right. And so we look at the things that Jesus did, the way he spent time with God, the way that he trusted God, the, the, the faith of Jesus, right, to his father. And he said, I'm I'm the vine and you are the branches. You know, I plug into God, you plug into me. And so we follow him and we imitate him. And today we are not in the place that Luther was in, where he was dealing with being an Augustinian monk in the Catholic Church and having a works righteousness approach to salvation. We are in a place, this is the current state of evangelicalism in America. Discipleship to Jesus Christ is a completely separate thing from the way that we talk about the gospel. The gospel and discipleship are unrelated in current evangelical world. (laughs) So you pray the sinner's prayer or whatever it is, and you just go on with your life. There's, there's not necessarily any sense that you need to know more about who Jesus is, that you need to think about how you would rearrange your life in order to be his student. He is the master and I am the student. That's what it is to have a rabbi, right? To have a teacher is to be his student. And in the Eastern tradition, it's to imitate him like a guru, right? You imitate your guru. So it's not just someone you learn from intellectually. It's someone you imitate their way of life. And so that's what I see as being lost in some sense in the way that you describe our attitude towards the, I guess, the path of holiness or sanctification. And I want to hear you respond to that. So I think the problem I would have with that is people have to be upfront with their failure that they're going to do when they try or they train or whatever. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that's where you see some people fall away from the faith in that they get all jacked up and thinking, oh, I found Christ and they enter the church and they're gung-ho with the church for a couple of years. And then their particular person with their, what did we call it earlier in the podcast here, distaste for sin, right? I think of that as a spectrum or a scale and we all are different. Some of us are a little more uh, have a, a bigger taste for sin or a, or a less taste for sin, right? So, but we're all sinners, yeah. every single one of us. And so there's kind of this scale of what you are as a human being, the, the particular way that God made you. And that if you are put into that holy environment where everybody's doing the checklist, but maybe for the right reasons, like what you're trying to claim, right? That the, we're training, we're, we're doing, we're emulating these things. And they just say, oh, I can't do it anymore. It's just, I don't like church anymore. It's not my thing, right? And so if they're not always first and foremost, that grace is it, and you are not obligated to do anything 
to be one with God other than through faith alone, I think that's where people start to fall away from the church because uh, when they leave church and there's a a to-do list, the pastor heard it described as law, gospel, law when people go to church. So the pastor talks about the law, talks about the gospel. So you're saved. Good, good news. You're saved. But then the last part of the, of the sermon is something along. Now be sure to do A, B, C, and D when you leave or to be good little Christians as you go. And that type of messaging is there in some denominations, some pastors. It's there in the Lutheran church, by the way. I, I think it's just a little bit of human nature to have this thought that we're what a good Christian looks like or is to be. And so what Luther always wanted and what I think people who are strong in Lutheran theology is that the pastor's sermon on Sunday is law and gospel. You leave with gospel. There's no checklist. There's no to-do list uh, as you're exiting the church. God's going to emerge in the way he uniquely formed you and in your vocation to serve him. Keep your faith strong and know that you're always he's always got your back. I, I might have to disagree a little bit with Russ here. I find So I'm very wary to ever disagree with the point that Russ is making here. And the reason is if you, again, if you read a lot of Paul's epistles, he's very cautious about accepting the idea that we're under the law. It's very clear that we're not under the law, but Paul does say that we should still walk with the spirit. And so I think for people who are believers who have accepted salvation, there is sort of a call to love your neighbor and love God. And that's what's called walking in the spirit. So Paul says, again, this is Galatians, that we're, we're no longer under the law, but we should be walking in the spirit. And he does actually give a list of things to avoid. He says you should avoid envy and dissensions and rivalries and anger and jealousy, mm-hmm. all sorts of things. And I'm with Paul there. We should avoid those things. And I do expect that will be something that comes out of salvation. And so what I take Rachel to be saying is that we're in this context now, we're in a different context where Christians have accepted Christian liberty so much that they've spilled out and that it's become Christian license is that you can now just pray the prayer and do whatever you want, which is sort of, sort of, but let me just jump in real quickly and say, sometimes it can also be Christian legalism. I mean, it can go both ways, but the point is, is that neither one is about following Jesus. I mean, the, the, a good Christian is, looks like Jesus. And so as I'm becoming closer to Jesus, I'm becoming more like him. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, some other Lutheran scholars kind of look at the gap between God and humanity. And with Lutheran theology, the gap is vast. And so, again, kind of your most righteous deeds are filthy rags. There's no such thing as a good Christian. <laughs> good, good people don't exist in terms of that. So the gap is wide. I totally agree with you, by the way, in terms of training and habits, but it's your approach to that, that do I have to do that? Or is that, I really know this about myself that I'm greedy or I'm envious and I want to work on that. Yes. I think that's, I agree with all of that. I I do have an explicit disagreement there, but I actually, I don't think it's a real disagreement. I think that there are good Christians, but the reason that they are good is not because of what they do. It's because they've been covered by Christ's blood. And I do think that Christ has redeemed people. And so because of Christ fulfilling the law by living the perfect life, some people have taken on his righteousness. That's what we're told is we take on that righteousness. So in a, in a way we are good, but it's not because of the actions. I agree with Russ there. But that, every that, Christian is covered by Christ's blood. That's right. Yes. So what is the difference between Corey Ten Boom and Russ McCullough? You know what I'm saying? Do you know I don't know. Is? No, I don't. You're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Have you not read The Hiding Place? Russ no. McCullough? I can't no. believe it. Everyone no. listening to this podcast, go on Amazon <laughs> right now. And I'll get write the it down. Place. 
Okay, she's the in, the, in a Lutheran too. I can't okay. even believe you wouldn't know. But no, I'm teasing you. Or Richard Rumbrandt, right? Who was a Lutheran minister tortured under the communists and the Nazis and who preached the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to his torturers and converted them. We have to simply be straightforward about something. Not every Christian person, a person who is justified, who is covered in the blood of Christ, has the ability to do what Richard Rembrandt did because they have not yet trained in the way that he had. And by training, I simply mean taking certain steps that take you deeper into the grace of God. So you're absolutely right, Russ. It can't be a duty thing. It cannot be. That will never work. And that's, that's legalism. Mm-hmm. where you get into it being a duty. If what you are banking on is God's deep love for you and that you are totally forgiven and you are starting from that place, right? And that the holy person is using up God's grace, which is power that we have because the power that we have that's un- undeserved, right? It's something where God makes us capable of doing something we wouldn't otherwise be capable of doing. That means that the holy person is using more grace, so to speak. It's a weird way to talk, right? (laughs) Than the sinner, because they're depending on God to be able to do amazing things. Yeah, see, I I probably start to have a little problems with more grace. I think of grace as a corner solution. Like we've all, (laughs) once you've got it, you've got it. Oh, Peter, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I'm not shaking my head vigorously or anything. I'm just (laughs) nodding along. I think that there, like, we can have talks about like different types of grace, but there is an idea of saving grace, which is something you have. But we also have the Bible talks about common grace, which is rain falls on the sinner and the saints. And so you could have more or less common grace, maybe. But I do agree with Russ that to me, saving grace is binary, zero one. You have it or you don't have it. Um, But are you accessing it? That's my only question. Clearly, when Paul was going through (sighs) shipwrecks and preaching and all of this, he was relying on God's grace every second of every day in a real practical way. I agree. It's it's tricky to parse. The question back would be, could we have more grace or could we have more righteousness than the righteousness of Christ? This might be another way to ask that question. Yeah, let me let Rachel do that one because I think you're in my line of thought. I'm still on the zero one. I'm not really thinking of this in terms of righteousness. So I would, my pushback to you okay. on that one would just be that we can't tap more into grace. God may choose to use us as a vessel and a vehicle to do some wonderful things like the people that you mentioned, more so than the average Joe on the block that's saved by grace for, for whatever reason, whatever God's mysterious plan is. But I don't think it's that person that's tapping into a greater amount of grace or something. I think it's God filling that person with the spirit to pull off sometimes miraculous things or wonderful things. Well, then why did Jesus separate himself from his disciples and go up alone onto the mountain and spend a day with God? What was the point? What was the point? I know, I know, he's Jesus, he's God. So we don't (laughs) go, so we don't separate ourselves for a day and go pray and spend time with God? Well, so my answer to that, again, it might be different than Russ's, is as we receive grace, we do, it's a a matter of fact, not so much as a a prescription or anything, but it's a matter of fact that we do start to try to resemble him in our lives, that that's part of That's not true. I'm sorry, but that's (laughs) not true. Christians in America, Christians in America, I mean, I'll just use our own tradition, have been deeply evil. I think if a person is not being sanct is not going through some process of sanctification, that's evidence that they don't have salvation. 
it's not proof, but you'll know them by their fruits. Right? I, I like, right. I like and, the way you're so saying that. There's some evidence. That we, we know there are people yeah. who will call on the name Lord, Lord, and not be saved. And so those must be people who proclaim faith, but don't, but don't actually have faith, right? And so is this I, Peter who I'm talking yes, to? this is Peter. Peter, was Ravi Zacharias a Christian? I, I don't know. That's a good question. It's something that by his fruit, there's more question now than there was before, certainly. But I can't know someone else's salvation other than my own. That's, that's tricky. Okay. I mean, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, my, <laughs> I would think surely he was. Surely Ravi Zacharias was a Christian. And he was someone who got something wrong about the Christian life such that he was able to be corrupted in the way that he was. Yeah, he, and we he, can talk about what that was. That he okay, got time out, time out. Yeah, give us the background on Ravi Zacharias. Once again, I don't know another name drop. Oh, so sorry, I'm sure there's sorry. some other listeners. So, so, oh, go ahead, Rachel, you can. Yeah, so Ravi Zacharias is a very famous Christian apologist. He's very clever, kind of a logic chopper. And people really enjoyed his stuff. And it turned out, not during his whole life, but at the end of his ministry, he became totally inappropriate with women. It, at first, it seemed like maybe it was questionable, but we now know that it wasn't. It definitely happened. And, and some of it was very, very bad, including possibly rape. And he did a lot of self-justifying and a lot of weird things. Okay. So if I just say, well, I guess he wasn't a Christian at all. Wow. I mean, that's a strange thing to say. This is someone who had a... Well, yeah. I wouldn't say he isn't a Christian. I would never say that. I would say that I don't know. And that's the only evidence that we have of if someone is or isn't is first off, you know, if they say they are, that that's not nothing, right? That's if you say you are, that's more evidence than if you say you're not. Certainly, if you say you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. But just saying you are a Christian certainly also isn't proof that you are a Christian. Sure. Yeah, uh, no, that's and, true. And, and no amount of works in your life prove that either, I don't think. I think there are people who are very legalistic who could maybe take on the mantle of being a Christian and proclaiming the gospel but who aren't doing it because uh, they have faith in God. It's because maybe they're afraid of going to hell or something like that. Now, sure. I don't think yeah. that's necessarily the case in Ravi Zacharias's case, but I, like, I don't know is my ultimate uh, example. Now, I do agree with your diagnosis, and I, I'm afraid that the church is slipping a lot into ignoring walking in the spirit. I, I think that that's not a message that's often preached. But weirdly enough, the reason why I still don't worry too much about us focusing on salvation is because the way that I think that the world sees salvation is still, I think, this legalistic thing. I think if mo you ask most people, well, how do you know if you're going to heaven or not? Most people say, well, I'm a good person. A good like, person. like that's the yeah. answer. And so I think still focusing on how the law being a shadow points to how great Jesus is. I think focusing on that is still important for the world itself. Though inside the church, I agree, we, we need to have this conversation of what does Christian liberty mean? And does it mean that you should just pray the prayer and never do anything else in your whole life? Well, and I need to tell you something that will shock you. And that is that I don't believe that the central message of the gospel is about me going to heaven or hell. I think the central message of the gospel is that God is like Jesus, that Jesus is the, is the king. He's been declared to be the king of the universe <laughs> and that God is going to restore the entire universe. And the fact that I get to go to heaven is one teensy little drop in the bucket of that big message. Yeah, I, I actually, that's not shocking or necessarily something I'm like super opposed to. I, I guess my view of the gospel is that God is someone who is like perfect in glory 
And because he's perfect in glory, he chose to save us who were, who were sinners. That's how I would maybe de- describe the gospel. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, which was a pretty raw deal for him, really. I couldn't help but think of C.S. Lewis when you brought up Christian apologists. Him describing, I think it was in The Great Divorce, but maybe you'll remember uh, that there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that you wouldn't have thought are going to be there. Yeah, so true. Right? And so I think that... <laughs> there might be that, some people missing too, sadly. It, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think what he was touching on was that really it is grace and grace alone, that the way they live their lives, we might look at the evidence and say, well, that person probably didn't know Christ. And it turned out they did. It's, it's kind of the message that Lewis was trying to put forth on that. And then, like you say, I think he also mentioned that some of the people that we thought were really good people or whatever aren't on aren't on the bus. That's why I think well, it was the bus analogy that he used with Great Divorce. But Well, what, what I want to say is you guys are spot on with grounding everything in grace and always going back to grace and sanctification is through grace, just like justification is through grace. Absolutely. And when you fail, don't worry about it. Just, you know, whatever that you're, you're 100% correct about that. And grounding myself, Colossians three says, we have to set our minds on the things above, not on things below. And so if I'm thinking about the character of God, then his incredible mercy and grace towards me is a huge part of what I'm thinking about there. My question with you guys is what are the practices of the Christian life that help us to follow in the way of Jesus Christ, or do Lutherans just not do that? No, I think the practices of getting the uh, sacraments, the means of grace that are delivered to you through the pastor, through the words, they're all external, having bread and wine, and so that's a way to help support your faith, but it's all external for the Lutherans, that that stuff is given to you, it it is delivered to you, and I might have Peter's you making gotta a, show a face up, if I us. made I used the wrong. You gotta show up at church to get it. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I know, and that that's part of so, the practice part. So this is where Russ and I actually have a, a disagreement. I think is that I, I consider myself a little more like Reformed theology, and so I go to a church we don't practice the sacraments as like a means of achieving grace or anything like that. That that's not something that we still have communion, but it's not like explained as a means of achieving grace. But I I do agree, Rachel, with with you that there is a Christian walk, and that Christian walk looks like something. And so walking in the spirit does come with specific characteristics, which I talked about earlier, which is laid out, you know, in the gospels, as well as in several of the epistles, you know, we're supposed to avoid things like envy and jealousy. And so I I actually fully agree with you. There is a Christian walk and it looks like something. Absolutely. And so why can't I go back, look at the gleaning passage that she talked about in the podcast and say, I love God and want to serve God. I want to know what his character is like. He has a heart for the poor. And so I need to, with my mind, because we love God with our minds, Jesus added that one, right? And so I need to think about how to best love the poor. So when I go to the Chalmers Center, run by the guy who wrote When Helping Hurts, when I go to the Chalmers Center and I get my mission board to rethink our philanthropic model in light of true care for the dignity of poor people, that's sanctifying. But you don't do it then you're, you're missing out on an opportunity for sanctification. <laughs> I, I do think doing that is a good thing. I think the pitfall that we need to avoid, that we can avoid, is saying that because doing that is a good thing, that implies that we're in some way under the law, which yes. I would say that we're not. That's and absolutely that, right. And that's, yeah. why, that's why I brought the, it. We're on board. Yep, yeah, I think we're on that same page. It's like, and I think a lot of Lutheran theologians thought the same thing. Okay, so now I've got grace and I know I don't have to do anything. So now what should I do? 
right? And you, and you can look to the Bible in those stories and look at the things that, you know, you might be able to lead a flourishing life by following some of those guidelines. But as soon as you start to feel like you need to do them, have to do them, that's where I think we're drifting from Lutheran theology. I don't know what you mean by need to or have to. If I'm a Jesus Christ, if that's what I've committed to, then I've decided to. So I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, I, uh, I have to in the sense that I've decided to. Again, I'm no Lutheran theologian, but the Thinking Fellows podcast is three Lutheran theologians that are pretty awesome. And they said, you've basically got nothing to contribute. Everything is God and the Holy Spirit. And you being open through faith might open some opportunities for you to help fulfill those, but you don't, there's nothing of a checklist you have to do. What, are you, what do you do during Lent, Russ? Uh, nothing, but pray. You pray? So I don't, growing up Catholic, you know, we used to give up something, but uh, most Lutherans don't practice giving up something for Lent, if that's what you're thinking. But we have the full Lenten service, special service on Wednesdays, Ash Wednesday. So we have all the practices of, you know, being more engaged in preparation for the resurrection of Christ. But in terms of... But why does it matter? Why do you need to do anything to prepare for celebration of Easter? You know, that's why I didn't go to church this last Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, Justin's got something to jump in on. You know, I once heard a stand-up comedian say, well, I'm a Satanist, but I don't go to, you know, church or anything. I feel like <laughs> I can be just as close to the devil on the golf course on Sunday. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and what I took that to be is a kind of jab at this, at, uh, you know, somebody who's, who, th- who says I'm a Christian, but, you know, makes that same exact claim. Yeah, yeah. And the, the idea then is, well, then what's the difference between a Christian who doesn't go to church, who yeah. just goes to the golf course and, you know, the Satanist who goes to the golf course. And maybe if you consider this to be part of your identity, it's not that you have to do X to get Y. It's just you have to, if you are the kind of person who is an X and considers yourself an X, then you should be acting like that regardless. And here's the thing. Sometimes it will be hard. And that's where, that's where I think the difficulty comes with the way that I hear Russ talking sometimes. If, if I have nothing to contribute to the process of my own sanctification, then why is prayer hard sometimes? And I fully agree with Rachel here that Sometimes, and I'll be careful with my words here, but going off of what Justin said, because we are saved, God sanctifies us, and that sanctification that God puts us through is sometimes difficult for us. And that sanctification that he puts us through sometimes involves, or does involve, us committing actions, which he says are, you know, preferable to other actions. And so out of this fruit God gives us comes sanctification, and sanctification is a difficult process that we may not enjoy. And Russ is absolutely right that it can't be about trying. It can't be about duty. It can't be about obligation. It can't be about earning. That's all absolutely right. But if I get up as a pastor and I talked about, if I talk about on a Sunday morning, what practices could be sanctifying, that doesn't have to be law. It doesn't have to be law, but it absolutely has to be something we as Christians are talking about because we've lost it. We're, we're like, we think we can be saved and not follow Christ at all. So I'd like to add something that came to mind on, on how Lutherans kind of believe God chooses you. You don't choose God. Ultimately, God chose you. You were chosen. 
but you can unchoose God. So to answer your question on why do I go to church or not go to church or do some things, I think I can rationally reason through a situation where I slowly drift away from the church and maybe I ultimately lose my faith, right? So I can kind of imagine living my life, things are going good, I have a yacht and I go on vacation and uh, church just seems to be more and more distant and that practicing the faith, going, being a part of a church, being, doing some of the things, uh, giving to the poor, et cetera, et cetera, are all good habits so that I maintain the faith that I want to be throughout the rest of my life, that it is possible to drift away and ultimately say, what do I need God for? And all of a sudden you've really truly lost your faith and you are not good with God. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to get into all the debates over, you know, (laughs) over, you know, predestination and eternal security and things like that. I mean, that's beside the point, I think, frankly, but I hope that I'm, what I'm saying is I hope that we can develop ways of thinking about thick practices in a Christian tradition that are leading us in the direction of becoming more like Christ in a way that is not law and is not works righteousness at all, but is rather actually, well, let me say this, in the spiritual formation movement, which is the thing I'm a nerd about, that's Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and John Ortberg and that crap. I would say that I have never known any group of Christians who is more invested in the doctrine of grace than they are. And the idea that you are holy and deeply loved no matter what by God. That absolutely has to be the foundation of Christian discipleship. But then they go on to engage in a bunch of spiritual disciplines, not because they're checking them off a list. You can check, check disciplines off a list and not grow at all, but because you can choose to do things that really do shape your character. You know, we have habits. We're creatures of habit. We're well, much of our response to the world is built into our muscle memory. It's in our bodies. Yeah. And that's what that means is that we have to train our bodies. And that's not much different than the historical philosophers, right? I'm kind of looking at Justin here for a little help, but forming habits and what was that Kant or something, whether, you know, uh, the good thing that they weren't necessarily following Christian stuff, but what you're saying is you could be, have a life that's more flourishing using some of these practices and maybe the world would be a better place. And my fear is, Russ, that when you talk about the gospel in a certain way, it's only a mechanism. It's purely mechanistic. And so you're talking about the process of justification as a legal kind of declaration, but it's not something that affects my life or my habits or my body or my family or my practices or the way I spend my time. You see see what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and I, I would say that. To... Yeah, I would. I would say that the Lutheran theologians would say, no, you know, God will turn your life, right? That it is possible you will change. You'll want to do the things you're talking about uh, more so and engage in all of that stuff. But it's going to be through through God, not so much what you bring to the table. But can we still sit around and think productively about what those practices might be? Sure. I mean, the fact yeah, that I God so. might be inspiring us to do it is fine with me. I won't get into that debate. I mean, I, that may be correct. But I'm just saying, surely then if I look at a case like Ravi Zacharias, then maybe I need to stop and ask myself, what went wrong? Yeah. What are we doing in the church that a person that had achieved this kind of intellectual understanding of God could fall so short 
I mean, so far short to be actually evil in action. I mean, we're all evil. I understand we're all sinners, but really egregious, you know, violations of other persons in his life. And that's an important thing to reflect upon. We should ask ourselves, what are we doing in the Christian church that's cultivating this kind of person? And that's what I'm saying. We need to think about the cultivation of the person. And I don't think there's anything wrong with going back and looking at the Old Testament law and saying, what is, what is God's character that's being revealed here to the Jews? What is it about God that they're understanding through this law? So I can be just like David. I can meditate on his law day and night and be filled with wonder. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and prayer and yeah, yep. But, but I do think, and again, when you mentioned David earlier, I wanted to point out that Paul describes the law. David does describe the law as being important and holy, and Paul describes it this way too. But what Paul also mentions is that the law is a shadow. It's a shadow of what is to come, which is Jesus. And yeah. so I, I agree that, you know, the law is certainly not incompatible with the, the gospel. It can't be, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so really the respect for the law ultimately points back to this respect for Jesus. And I sense we're sort of converging. Maybe our one point of disagreement, which I'm not sure we'll finish in the podcast, maybe a point, and it might be something that you actually agree on, is when it comes to sanctification, I tend to focus on this idea that's throughout Romans that our conforming to the image of God or the image of Jesus rather is Jesus who is God, but our our conforming to the, the image of Jesus is a result of what God has predestined us to do. And that's where I think sanctification, sanctification ultimately is rooted in what God intends to happen. God sanctifies us, essentially. And, and the, yeah. the reflection of that reality is that Christians will look a certain way. And I totally agree with you, Rachel, that we can't say you can do whatever you want now. It's true that you can do whatever you want and still be saved. <laughs> but there are yeah. certain ways that you're called to act. There are certain ways that Jesus acted, right? But that confirmation, I think, conforming to his image ultimately comes from God, not ourselves. And I, this is where my drifting comment came from, is that if, if you have the mindset, I can do whatever I want, and you continue to do whatever you want, you're really worshiping yourself more than you are God. And so it continues to allow you to drift, to think, I don't really need God. And ultimately, you might just lose your faith, or you're basically and unchoosing then, and God. And so you need practices of worship. Yeah. No, right? I, that's, that's that, my point. I think that's the whole purpose of the church is to develop ways to, you know, encourage you to stay in the faith. And so even if God is absolutely predestining my sanctification, right? Even if he is the power behind it in every way, that doesn't mean that I don't need to think about the practices that we engage in and show up for them. In fact, (laughs) thinking about them is part of what he's predestined to you to do. So I I, I fully (laughs) agree with it. Yep. However you, I don't even want to get into it. You know, I mean, it's, it's not the point to me. The point is that it can't be that it will just strike me like lightning. I mean, I guess it's possible if God wanted to do it, he could just strike me with lightning and I'd be holy. But that's not, in fact, how it's ever been. Right. We become holy through practices, through the practices of the church, through the imitation of Christ. You know, and that's why Paul bothers to say things like set your mind on these things and not on these things. But wouldn't you say Paul was more struck by lightning? Yeah, well, Paul might be the one guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I found I an exception. That I, no, I wouldn't say that, Russ. No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't say that. He was struck by lightning with regard to who Jesus was. The personhood of Jesus, right? As that Jesus was God. But I don't mean that he became holy in that moment. No, I don't think that. I think he was a Pharisee. He had some good habits already. 
but he had that some bad theology. And so he needed to fix that. And so God fixed it for him. But my point is, if he, if he says, set your mind on things above and not on things below, then you will need to engage in practices that train your mind to be on things above and not on things below. Maybe we're speaking the same language with different words, but I just find it interesting that the we sometimes sound like we're saying very similar things. And sometimes like, for example, I could never say that Paul didn't instantly become holy. I think that he did. I think he took on the righteousness of Christ and that's as holy as someone could ever be or has ever been. And so it's it's a sort of like a, it's a weird needle to thread here where we, we certainly have agreement on where salvation comes from. We have agreement on what sanctification looks like. Maybe to but me you it do is believe more... in progressive sanctification. Yes, I mean, you, yes. You, right. if, if, I believe if a person That's saves, I mean. they will have progressive sanctification. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. So he yep. wasn't perfectly sanctified. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so throughout his life, he had lessons he needed to learn and things still, right? So that's true. And so I just hope that we don't just wait for the lightning to strike when it comes to holiness. I hope that we undertake some method, whether it be regular prayer or you know, various sorts of disciplines. I think that we have overdone a little bit, such a rejection of the Catholic tradition that we don't even want to engage in practices that look too Catholic, you know, like a silent retreat or something like that. And it's like, who cares? You know, the question is, is it effective? It's not a law. It's not a law that you do certain spiritual disciplines. It's something like, is it the sort of thing that actually trains your mind and body to become more connected with God. Yeah, I still, and I, I'm not even, when I say that, I don't mean to be saying, sounding like I'm disagreeing, even though I did almost with that, but that you can keep those two things separate. Some of what you're saying sounds like I want to be healthy, so I'm going to exercise. I'm going to partake in practices that will help me be healthy because I want to stay well into my 80s or something, right? So that's kind of your goal. And as a Christian, you can kind of think of it that same way. What are some practices that I'd like to do because I want my faith to remain strong and continue my, practices, my journey with Christ and how I engage with other people. But the health I'm talking about is in this, it's not exactly parallel in just the way that Peter was saying, which is that what you're doing is you're just tapping into the reality of God. You're, you're tapping into the spiritual reality in a deeper way. You're becoming more deeply aware of it. You're, you're drawing on it more readily right? Like someone who talks to God often will be more likely to ask God for help in a particular situation because they're used to talking to God. So they just will like the beautiful book, the practice of the presence of God by brother Lawrence, which I highly recommend. Right. And so that's all, none of that has to be grounded in law. It doesn't. That's what I reject. It doesn't yeah. have to be grounded in, in law. Yeah. I think we are running out of time here. So yeah. I, I would say, but my, my final statement is I, I think the way that I could summarize my point of view is that if you're waiting for the lightning strike, like you're just sitting there waiting for the lightning strike to happen, it hasn't struck yet. That, that, that's what will, will be my, my final, my word out is that there, I think that there is a lightning strike that happens, but if you sit around and wait for it, that means that it hasn't. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> I'm not sure either. I, I would say there doesn't have to be a lightning strike in terms of a born again moment, that there's plenty of cradle Christians that are saved by grace and continue to further their faith. So I'm not sure that's exactly what you were saying or not, but we certainly believe in cradle Christians, both in the, I think the Catholic church as well as the Lutheran church. So I'm saying, once again, you, guys, I'm not talking about justification. Yeah. I'm talking right. about, I, 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 so know. I'm talking about, so I'm, I'm saying if you're waiting around for something to happen, 
that makes you want to go out and do works that look like Jesus. If you're waiting around for that, it's because you haven't had the lightning strike in the first place. That, or you could just get up off your butt and walk over to somebody who, who lives that way and ask them what then, to do first. Right. Then you have had the lightning strike, right? Okay. That, that's, that's my view. <laughs> that I can go with. Sure, sure. Okay, okay. All right, Rachel, your last word, and then we'll call this a wrap here. Well, I appreciate that I think we are coming together. You know, we are converging, as Peter said. I think we do. There is a lot of overlap, but I do think there's a danger in terms of emphasis. And so we do sometimes need to think about what is the state of the church today and what is the church today missing in Christian doctrine that maybe is a different set of things from 500 years ago, you know? And so that might affect what we emphasize. All right. Well put. Well, thank you, Rachel, for joining us once again here. We love having you on and we'll definitely do a future podcast about that book of yours. So thank you. Okay, great. I look forward to it. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And if you feel so inclined, a five-star rating helps other people find our podcast. And so we'd appreciate if you do that, as well as letting your friends know about what we do. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.